Well, good morning uh, to all of you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is David Valencia. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here at New Life. Uh, so if you have kids, I've probably interacted with you in one way or another. And if you don't, well then, good to meet you. Um, yeah, before, before we begin, I know that most of you, uh, you know, your favorite part of the Sunday sermon is when Pastor John quotes Spurgeon. So I just, I got to preface this. I have only one Spurgeon quote that I will give to you now um, so that you can capture. It's my favorite one. It is, uh, there is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. <laughs> Do with that what you will. Um, I can definitely say I've never been sad while eating pancakes. <coughs> um, well, we're gonna get into the text. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're new here, our uh, first time, you know, you, we've been going through the book of Matthew's Gospel here at New Life. And last week, Pastor John took us through the last part of chapter 17 where Jesus paid the temple tax. And we saw how Jesus proved his divinity as well as seeing how God provides for his people. And so today we continue looking at the first nine verses of chapter 18. And then here we'll see uh, how humility is needed to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that humility comes from a dependence on the Father. So what does it mean to be the greatest? We have lots of definitions for what greatness is. Um, and depending on your interests or your hobbies, you will say that to be great at something, it depends on a lot of things. If you're a sports fan, we could say, you know, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Answers will vary. If you're right, it is Jordan. <laughs> As you can see, people have their definitions. Um, <clears throat> if you're somebody like me who is into literature, you know, you can say, you know, who is the greatest author? And that will just have so many different answers. Um, yeah, and it depends. Well, what kind of literature do you like? What I like may not be what somebody else likes. But when we think about greatness, we're thinking about there is something that defines that greatness. When we look at, you know, church history and going back to Spurgeon, we, people say, oh, he was the prince of preachers. Well, why? Well, he got his message across in a way that related to people. Uh, he spoke uh, with great intonation. And so we have these things in our mind that it's, this is what defines greatness. So when it comes... Uh, to the kingdom of heaven, how do we define that greatness? How do we say who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it the person who prays the most or the person who has the most uh, scripture memorized? Is it the person who devotes all of their time to volunteering in soup kitchens? We can have differing um, definitions of what it means to be great. But here in this section, we'll see how Jesus defines it. 
So we find the disciples in the beginning, verse 1. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And perhaps we're tempted to, you know, look back at the disciples and be like, oh, silly disciples thinking about such things. But, you know, we have the benefit of the cross, of being on this side of the cross and of knowing how Jesus will respond. The disciples still have some of these messianic expectations of a king who would come and overthrow the Romans. And so if they're acknowledging that Jesus will be this king, you know, they're also recognizing, well, a king, what does he need? He needs a court. He needs advisors. So the disciples are thinking to themselves, hey, how do we get up there? How do we become great in the kingdom? What will it take? What, what, what are these defined parameters? When I, was, when I started high school, my one and only goal in high school was to get into college. Um, I wanted to know, okay, what does it take to get into college? What do I need? And so I, you know, looked around and said, okay, you got to take this, this, and this. And so I was like, all right, good grades. Let's study. Let me do the homework. Let me get ahead of the homework. Extracurriculars, I'm on top of it. Volunteer opportunities, I'm there. I wanted to excel. I wanted to be known as somebody who did well and then get into college. And so the disciples, too, they want to be able to achieve this greatness. They want to figure out who is the greatest. And so in his typical fashion, Jesus doesn't answer the question the way they would expect him to. We, we would love it if Jesus was like, all right, here's the list of things to do to be the greatest. But instead, verse 2, we see, it says, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, one, you have to turn, become like a child. And two, if you don't, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what does it mean to turn and become like a child? A lot of us have probably heard uh, people talk about this passage um, that's saying your faith should be blind like that of a child, unquestioning, following blindly. But Scripture tells us, paints a different picture of faith for us. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, so faith is the proof that something is there, even when we may not fully understand it. You know, faith is not uh, your friend telling you to jump out of a plane because you're in a magical plane that won't let you die, and so you do it, right? No, faith is trusting your friend when they say, hey, you jump out and there's this parachute, it'll catch you once you pull the strap, done it over and over again. And so our faith should never be one that is afraid of questions. If we claim to follow the one who called himself the truth, then we can wrestle with the hard parts of life, knowing our Father is there with us. 
So faith is not just looking out at a broken world and saying, wow, I can't wait till all this is done. But it's saying, Father, come quickly. Establish your kingdom soon. And so the faith that we are called to have is not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. And so what does it mean to become like children? Children are completely dependent on their parents to provide. Children trust and love their parents above all else. They know that they can't provide for themselves fully. And so Jesus causes us to turn and become like those children. We're called to let go of our pride and our ego, of our self-sufficiency. But that's hard, right? We want to be the captains of our own ships, the masters of our faith. Like Nimrod, we seek to establish a kingdom that will proclaim our name, that will tell people of our fame. We fall into the trap of self-reliance. I can do everything for myself. I can do everything by myself. I don't need people. We make plans. We say, I'm going to do this and that. And yet all this, and none of us can even guarantee that we'll be awake tomorrow. We can't even guarantee that we'll make it home after the service. We are reliant on a higher power. And so that first step of entering the kingdom is to let go of that pride and that self-sufficiency that tells you I don't need anybody to help me out. Some of you may have had a clear come-to-Jesus moment in your lives where you'd been running away from God and then there came this moment where you recognized your sins You recognize the need um, for someone greater than you to come and save you from your life. Those of us who have grown up in the church, perhaps we don't have such exciting stories. But if we've truly placed our faith in Christ, we've come to recognize that we ourselves know that his saving grace is a mercy to us. That we cannot enter heaven because of what we've done or haven't done we must become dependent on God for our needs. Parents with uh, small children, how long could your child last in the world if you just sent them out to fend for themselves for a day? Not very long, right? Even some of you with older children, with teenagers, if you sent them out, they'd probably come back in a couple hours saying they were hungry. A small child depends on their parents to get them from place to place, to feed them, to shelter them. Their needs are entirely provided for by parents. And even when children seek independence in their surroundings, they will always come back when they get overwhelmed or exhausted or tired. So this is the kind of relationship that we should be having with the father one of complete and utter dependence. When we wake, we should give thanks for uh, his sustenance through the night. 
When we sleep, we give thanks for his provision throughout the day. We go to him in prayer for every need, big or small. We cast our cares on him because he cares. Has your child ever not made their needs be known? They'll come to you and they'll tell you when they're hungry. They'll tell you when they're tired. That when they want you to buy them every single toy at Target, they're not afraid to ask you, right? How much less should we be going to the Father when we're stressed or anxious or overwhelmed by life? He wants to be there for us. Your child shares their joyous occasions with you. They'll find a flower that they think is beautiful and bring it to you to admire. They'll show you how they can jump from a chair and they want you to watch them do it a hundred times. How much less should we be sharing our moments of joy with the Father? The gratitude of getting that job that we've been praying for, the blessing of our family and friends around us. Every moment of our life should be dependent on God. And so Jesus says that whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Quite a lesson for all of us. Those who don't humble themselves, or those who do humble themselves, that is what it means to be great. To recognize your need for God, your dependence on him. And so verse 5 goes on to say, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Words that seem a little shocking because we're used to this idea of, you know, Jesus as our best friend, Jesus as, you know, your buddy. But we see that Jesus doesn't just seek to be our savior. He also seeks to be our king and our Lord. He is a shepherd who will protect his sheep at any cost. And so this whoever in this section shifts from, you know, the children, the child that's in their midst, to talking about believers, new believers, whoever causes one of these to sin or stumble, it would be better for them to die a horrible death. The great millstone was a giant stone used to crush grain. It was so big it required, you know, donkey or oxen to move it. And so Jesus says, if you're going to cause someone to sin, if you're going to intentionally try to do this, it'd be better for you, for that heavy millstone to be attached to you and for you to be thrown into the ocean. And so here we see one of these glorious truths of Scripture that Jesus as our king does not take attacks on his followers lightly. Jesus identifies with his body. He identifies with us. When Saul was persecuting the church, what does Jesus say? Does he come down and say, Saul, why are you persecuting them? No. He says, Saul, why do you persecute me? The youth group is currently going through the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights. 
And I love that book because it talks about our union with Christ. It talks about how we are so closely intertwined with Jesus. What is a sign of entrance into God's community? Baptism. And in baptism, we get to see that symbol of our union played out. We go under the waters as Christ went into the earth. We rise up again from those waters as Christ rose up victoriously. We will go through the end times judgment, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, safe from that final judgment because of our union with Christ. We are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And when we stand before God, all we will do is point to Christ and say, this is my only plea. And so it is because of this deep union that when a believer is caused to sin or stumble, Christ takes it personally. So he says, uh, <clears throat> whoever receives, what we see is whoever receives a believer receives Christ in their midst. Whoever rejects a believer is rejecting Christ. And so the way we interact with each other is reminiscent of the way that we see Christ. Are you one who joyfully greets every person who walks through these doors? Is your heart full when you leave the parking lot in a couple hours? Are you quick to invite others into your house? Because if Jesus were here, wouldn't we all be rushing to have him be the one sitting next to us? To be the one saying, Jesus, come to my house for lunch. And, you know, you secretly send your kids ahead of you to clean up a little. So why is it different when it's somebody, an image bearer? They are, they are, they carry the image of God. And if they're a believer, they too have the same spirit in them that dwells in you. And so when we receive them, we are receiving Christ. Maybe you're the person who, you know, you just come here and you're like, oh, let me, let me sit in the back. No shade to those of you sitting in the back. Um, but you don't want to greet anybody. You try to come as close to the starting time as possible. And soon as we're finished praying, you're just out the door. You make no effort to fellowship with people outside of this time. Is that how you would be treating Jesus? No, right? So the way that we treat each other and interact with each other is a way that we would be doing it with Jesus or that we should be. So in this fellowship, in this deep fellowship that we have with each other, there's also a warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Paul tells us, it is for freedom that we have been set free. But Paul also tells us to not let our freedom 
be a stumbling block for others. When we enter the family of God, when we come together as a church, we carry a responsibility for one another. Here is your father and mother and brothers and sisters. Here are the people that you will be spending eternity with. We receive freedom as the sons and daughters of the Most High, but we should never let that freedom become a stumbling block for weaker, younger believers. Perhaps, you know, you're somebody who enjoys the occasional IPA in your own house. In that case, you know, probably go see if you have COVID and lost your sense of taste. But maybe there's somebody in your life group or around you who struggles with alcoholism or who is less likely to enjoy a drink. Are you willing to forego your beverages for a night to spend time with this person? Or maybe you had a different upbringing and in your house, you know, you can watch the movies that have a little bit of crude humor in them and it doesn't offend your sensibilities. Are you okay of letting go of that movie to spend time with someone else who might have a stricter view on what is funny? If you're eating meat causes a brother to stumble, will you forego that to help those with different convictions? And so we see that we carry a responsibility for each other. We have to carry one another's burdens. And when we intentionally try to cause somebody to stumble or to sin, Christ takes that very personally. He does not take it lightly. And in verse 7, Jesus goes on to say, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So woe is such a strong word. We saw it when Jesus pronounced judgment on the Pharisees and the scribes. We see it when God pronounced judgment on the nations in the Old Testament. Woe to the one who causes believers to stumble and sin. Woe to the one who comes in the midst of this congregation and begins to try and lead people away from Jesus. The one who begins to question whether the scriptures are true. The one who plants thoughts in the minds around them of, did God really say? And as we, as we look at this as the ones uh, by whom temptation comes, we can see it in our day and age in many places. You see uh, pastors or people who call themselves pastors preaching false doctrine, preaching a false gospel, telling you if you give me this much money, God will give you this much back. Or we see, um, especially online a lot, people who have deconstructed and walked away from their faith. And now what they seek to do is to 
lead others away from that same faith they once proclaimed. And they began, and they say, hey, do you know that this is, you know, a later addition to the text? Or, hey, do you know that people think Jesus didn't really say this, this, and this? And so you have people who might be newer in their faith or younger believers, and they began to question and doubt. And Jesus says, woe to those who would do such things, who would lead people away. And so that's, you know, James tells us, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so that's is not to discourage any of you from exercising that gift of teaching. But those who stand here in front of you, or those who stand in the classrooms in Sunday school, it is you should be coming to it with a sober mind of, am I teaching what God has said in his word? Or am I trying to draw people away from the truth? One of the greatest, um, you know, misconceptions, and maybe it's not so much a misconception, but one of the ideas that people have when, you know, you go to seminary is, oh, they're just going to teach you how to walk away from your faith. And praise God, I went to a really great seminary that showed me how to love Jesus more, but there are places where it's, there are academics who are saying, well, should we take all this as truth? Should we be reading these scriptures more as a myth, more as guidelines? And Jesus says, woe to those who do such things. And so then Jesus begins to get more personal in the last couple of verses. Verse uh, 8 says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and uh, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So once again, Jesus is getting real serious. You know, it's that topic that none of us really like to talk about, hell, and when we look at Scripture, the person who talked about it the most was Jesus himself. And he takes it seriously. And so we should take it seriously, too. Now, this section, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take it literally about chopping off body parts. You know, there's a, there's a story, probably an urban legend, but an early church member by the name of Origen, that he took it literally. And he cut off his manhood so that he would not be tempted to sin. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not saying, go, cut off body parts, and that's how you'll enter heaven. Does our sin come from these external things? Is it because I have hands that I'm tempted to steal? Is it because I have eyes that I'm tempted to lust? 
No, right? Our actions, where do they spring from? From the heart, from our inside. I want to steal because my heart tells me to take what is not mine. I lust because my heart tells me to freely look as I please. I long to run to evil because my heart says, do whatever you want. The heart is deceitful above all things. But we see that sin is no laughing matter. It is nothing to mess with. Sin is this present wrapped in the prettiest paper with a nice shiny bow on top. It looks appealing to the eye. And when you open it, the only thing inside is excrement. Sin is a woman who looks beautiful from far away. She tempts you, telling you to come closer. As you approach, you see her house is full of death, and her jaws are waiting to devour you. It's that shiny car, the nice house, the green grass on the other side, calling your name. A siren singing in song of beauty. And you, you run to throw yourself off the ship. But all you find is death and destruction. And so Jesus says, it is uh, the best way to deal with sin is through drastic measures. It is better to enter the kingdom limping than to stride into hell. And so we see that we're called to take drastic measures. We're called to deal with our sin at its core, to wage spiritual warfare at it. You know, it's, are you struggling with pornography in your house? Throw away your computer. Throw away that smartphone of yours. And perhaps you're like, oh, but, you know, I spent this much money on my computer. Let me tell you, eternal life is worth more than that money you spent. Are you, when you get together with your friends, is it just to gossip and talk about other people? Might be time to find a new group of friends. And you say, oh, but I've known these people my whole life. It's better to enter the kingdom by yourself. Do you struggle with pride, maybe? Go and serve those that you think are below you. Learn what it means to humble yourself. We must be willing to do anything and whatever it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. How do you view your struggle with sin? Do you see it as a roaring enemy trying to drag you down with it? Or do you see it as a minor inconvenience that you will get to someday? I urge you to look and think and say, how am I attacking my sin? But here's the good news is we don't labor alone to fight our sin. We go back to the beginning of this and we remember that we're called to be like children. We're called to be dependent on God. And when we see our sin try to rise up in our life, we must fight against it. But we can also take heart in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We have the spirit who is working in us 
to convict us, to help us in our growth. And so that's the beauty of the gospel. We know that alone we can do nothing. If we try to kill our sin on our own strength, we will fail time and time again. But we know that this same Jesus who taught us to be humble and who caused us to kill our life of sin is the same Jesus who would go to the cross where he would become that sacrifice for our sins. He would bear the judgment of God for all who place their faith in him. And because of his death and resurrection, we can walk daily knowing that we are God's redeemed. Our sins have been paid for and we've been adopted by the Father as sons and daughters. And so in our fight against sin, we have a spirit who helps us die daily to our sins and an advocate in the Son when we seek forgiveness. And so this dependence on God should lead us to greater humility day after day. We have done nothing to earn our salvation, yet he has freely given it to us. We who were once his enemies, who hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, have been adopted and are invited to sit at the table with him. He is the one who has sealed us and given us assurance of our salvation. The work is finished, and we, like children, continue to depend on the Father as we grow into mature believers, awaiting the day when our struggle with sin and this world is over. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that we are called to humble ourselves, to let go of our pride and our ego and our sins. And Lord, we know that even when it seems like too much for us to bear, you are there with us, helping us carry our cross. And Lord, we give thanks for your finished work. We give thanks for the spirit who dwells in us and helps us to become more like Christ every day. Lord, uh, yeah, I just pray that this may become a reality in the lives of all of us here and that every day we may continue to depend on you for all of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.